You ever have one of those, uh, well, let's see, approve it moments before, the can you really walk the talk type of situation going on in life? I want you to think uh, back, put yourself as best you can in the ancient Middle East. Some 2,000 years ago, you're hearing the stories about this man by the name of Jesus. You've, you've heard how he's welcoming the outcasts, how he's lifting up the people who've been set aside, the miracles of turning water into wine, feeding 5,000 people with a little boy's lunchable. But the thing that seems to be be irritating the religious leaders isn't even the, the acts themselves. It's the teaching that is coming along with it. This teaching about this unending amount of grace and mercy and love from God the Father. You're sitting in the town square at this time and you see some of the religious leaders come into town bringing a woman with them. They find Jesus sitting in the middle of the, of the quarters and they plop her down in front of them. They look to Jesus and say, Jesus, uh, let's see what you got with this one, bro. <laughs> she was just caught in adultery. What say you? What, what are you going to do with her? Because at this moment, they think they've trapped Jesus. They think they, they've kind of got him in this predicament. He's not going to be able to get his way out. You see, because if Jesus lets her go scotch-free, then he truly doesn't value the laws and the regulations that God has put in place. Or if he, if he casts the stone and does what he ought to do, then he's not really as merciful as he claims and talks about. You see, if I'm Jesus at this moment, I kind of chuckle. I crack my knuckles. I'm like, let's get to work and see what you guys want to do with this. Jesus stoops down. He kneels on the ground. He begins to write in the sand. We don't know what he's writing. Some of the scholars believe it's the Ten Commandments. Other scholars think it's the sin of the, of, the, of the Pharisees and the scribes who had brought this woman before him. And then he gets up and he looks to these men and he just kind of says, He who is without sin shall cast the first stone. And one by one, starting with the oldest to the youngest, they begin to depart aware of their own sin, aware of their own depravity, leaving this woman alone. When it's just Jesus and the woman standing there, he looks at her and he says, so who's here to condemn you? Who's here to, to judge you? And she looks around and well, there's no one here. And he says, so neither do I. Go and sin no more. She's teaching like this, that, that, that catches our attention, that keeps us on our toes, because Jesus was able to do something so, so spectacular, because there was one person who could cast this stone, and that was himself, yet he chose not to. Because our God, our Savior, is one of love, and it is one of mercy. And so as we continue in our teaching series, Upside Down, talking about the Beatitudes, it's this, this way in which Jesus taught, this way in which Jesus uh, controlled the lives of, of those around him in a way that brought freedom and liberty above all else. You see, we called this series Upside Down because this teaching of Jesus, the Beatitudes, are quite backwards, Right? They're a little upside down. They're countercultural. It's a flip everything on its head type of way of living. And Jesus is saying, not only do I say this, not only do I claim this to be true, but this is what I will model. And now you need to follow suit. If you claim to be a Christian, 
If you claim to be a disciple, a follower of me, a follower of the way, then you too need to put this into practice. And so week one, we talked about how the Beatitudes kind of follow this cadence, this pattern here. Show it to you on the screen. Where in week one, and, and then in, in Beatitude eight, we see over here that they're going to get the same reward. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is what everyone's going to be left with. But then in week two, or in a Beatitude two, I should say, it all kind of drops out. You bring nothing to the table. You remember that, right? We're spiritual beggars. We're poor in spirit. But progressively it builds, and it builds. Of the, if Jesus lives in you, if the Spirit of God is the power source of your life, you will begin to see how the kingdom of God becomes yours. But today, in this Beatitude, we begin to see that this upside down isn't so much a backwards of thought. Rather, it's an upside down of action. It's going to cause us to do something. Where the others were about, hey, what do you believe inwardly about yourself and your relationship with God? Today, it's going to say, so does that change how you operate in life? You see, it's not an outward, inward thing. It's not saying, earn it, show your obligation. Uh, maybe the works of your hands can be good enough to show that you belong. Rather, what Jesus is saying, he said, no, 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 no. If you believe this, if I am the Lord of your life, if you have been transformed in your heart, it should begin to express itself outwardly. So that leads us to Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. If you have the app, you can follow along with us this morning. One verse, simple verse, but beatitude number 5, I think it is. Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, Jesus says these words. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. This is the only verse in which the, the, the upside down, the command matches the reward, the makarios, the blessing of what is received, this, this synonymous countercultural way of living. But mercy is an interesting word, isn't it? It's something that, that, that we're familiar with. Perhaps we talk about mercy. There's books and movies and songs written about mercy. But it's interesting that Jesus talks about mercy. He shows mercy. He exemplifies mercy. Yet it's the one thing that he wasn't given in the last moments of his life. In that culture back then, in the Roman Empire, it was not a, known as a society of mercy. It was one of power and prestige and wealth and authority and, and leveraging what you have in order to subject others to you. And that mercy was a sign of weakness. So what is mercy really? Is it saying sorry when you mess up? Is it forgiveness? Is, is, is mercy just saying, hey, I'm going to try not to do it again? Like when my four-year-old decides to whack his sister across the face with a pillow, you know, just because. Go say sorry to your sister, and he walks up, sorry, Avery. I mean, maybe it's heartfelt. It's probably not. But, but, but where's the mercy in that, right? Mercy is forgiveness, but it's something deeper, isn't it? See, mercy, it comes from this Greek word, elios. And it talks about this feeling of pity deep within someone. But it focuses on an action of kindness to relieve the issue. Right? So, so what we begin to see is that mercy is more than just saying sorry. Mercy is more than just saying, hey, I forgive you. 
That mercy involves and it requires an action of this desire for the pain to be removed, for the baggage to be lightened, for the shame to be wiped clean from that person. Let's be honest for a second, though. When it comes to mercy, it's easier said than done, isn't it? That mercy is easier said than done. That when the talk of mercy comes up, we all, we all clap and we smile and we nod. Yep, mercy is great. We, we receive the mercies of God, but it's another thing to put it into practice. It's a tough question for all of us. Is will I actually be merciful when the opportunity arises. In 1969, there was a, a Jewish man by the name of Simon Weisenthal, and he wrote this book called The Sunflower. It's a pretty powerful and it's a very profound book. And Simon was a, said he was a Jewish man who had survived through the war, and he had survived through a camp. And he's recounting this story in which he was out tending a garden near a hospital, and this nurse bursts through the doors, and she makes a beeline for Simon. It's like this, this undeniable, she has got to get something done. And she walks up to Simon, and she just says to him, he says, you, 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 you come with me. And he's like, oh, okay. So he puts down his tools and begins to follow this woman into the hospital. Because ask her, where are we going? What are we doing? She doesn't say a thing until she finally gets to the spot in which they arrive. And it's the bedside of a Nazi soldier. The nurse looks at Simon and says, he has something he wants to say to you. Our minds probably begin to speculate what was said or maybe what was shared. He goes on to share this moment in which this this soldier who was within moments of his life, he recounts a, a time in which him and his comrades, they gathered up some Jewish people, tied them together, put them in a building, and lit the building on fire. Then as the building began to burn to the ground, if they somehow managed to escape and get out, their directions were to mow them down. So here's Simon, having survived some of these horrific details, standing next to this man. And the Nazi soldier looks to him and says, I know I am just moments away from meeting my maker, but before I do, I need you to show me mercy. And the book ends right there. The story goes dark. The rest of the book that is written, we don't know how the story ends, and it's thought leaders, it's pastors, it's religious people, it's influential people with power who say, well, this is what I think Simon ought to have done. This is, well, this is what I feel like I would have done. This is what I believe Simon did do or should have done in the moment. We all know that mercy, it's easier said than done. But what are you going to do when the opportunity actually arises? I want you to think of a couple instances in your own life. I want you to think about, think about the, the moment in which you, most recent moment in which you needed mercy yourself. Perhaps it was last night. Perhaps it was getting ready. Perhaps it was as you pulled into the parking lot this morning. I don't know. Don't look at that person across the room, right? Okay, right? 
I want you to think of the most recent moment in which you yourself needed mercy. I also just want you to think about, think about the, the biggest moment in which you needed mercy in life. What's that one thing? I think we all have them. If I could go back in time, I would not have done that thing, said those words, treated that person in such a way. The thing is, then you can take those both and you can flip them upside down. What is the most recent time in which you have been wronged and needed to show mercy? What is the biggest moment in your life in which you were on the wrong side of the action in which you were given the opportunity to show mercy? You see, what we begin to think and we begin to see and understand is, is that mercy is for all. Not just the wrong, but the wrongdoer. Not just the oppressed, but the oppressor. Not just the victim, but the victimizer. And it makes the case that we are both called to be givers and receivers of mercy. You see, we are aware of our faults. We are aware of our sin. We are aware of the things in which we have done wrong against God and against one another. At the same time, too, we've all received the wrong from perhaps ourselves or other people around us. But the interesting thing about Jesus, the interesting thing about mercy, is that Jesus doesn't say, I am going to love you more than the person who has wronged you. God doesn't say, I love those this much, and those who have wronged you, I love them just a little bit less. No, God says, my, my love, my grace, my mercy, my compassion, it is unfathomable, it is unquenchable, it is for each and every one of you. We are all equally in need of giving and receiving the mercy of God. Now, I need you to hear me for a second, though, when I say this. Is mercy, it, it, it doesn't okay the wrongs throughout life. Mercy doesn't say, okay, well, I'm just going to choose to live in this abusive relationship. Mercy doesn't say, well, I'm just going to continue to let people stab me. And no, no, mercy doesn't okay the wrongs. It does, it does not gloss over systemic issues. It does not okay series of, of, of oppression or injustice. Mercy, it never okays the wrong, but mercy is ultimately about how we respond to the wrongs of life. But if you're like me, your, your gut reaction to the wrongs of life, it's never to be merciful, is it? It's like this giant pendulum I feel like I live on. On one side, it's vengeance. On the other side, it's apathy. And when I, when I see or feel the, the experiences, the wrongdoings of life, I'm typically one of these two naturally, right? And neither one of these is helpful or merciful, but it's kind of where we all live. On one end uh, is the vengeance side of us, and this usually comes out when someone has wronged us personally. Like even a couple days ago, I was sitting in the parking lot waiting to get into a spot, right? So I'm sitting there chilling. I got my blinker on, waiting for this person to kind of get in and get out and, and move out of the way. And as soon as the person moves, this other car whips from around the island straight into my spot. And you know what my gut reaction was? Okay, well, that's nice. You must need it. No, no, no. My gut reaction was, do I got a pocket knife? Can I go slash their tires? I'm going to go leave their windshield. I don't know. Right? There was this vengeance that I wanted to do. So I'm going to hold you accountable. I will get you back. That was my spot. I don't own it. I didn't pay for it, but I was here first. Right? That's kind of this, this vengeance attitude we get. When we have been wronged, we say, don't worry. I will pay you back. 
And sometimes we say, not only will I pay you back, but I'll give you some extra on top. I will settle the score, and I will let you know when things are good. On the other side, we have apathy. Well, there's nothing I can do about it. That of my control doesn't really affect me. That's in the past. I'm just going to forget about it. Not my problem. And, and typically, we respond to these types of wrongs when they're more public, when they're more social types of injustices. We get a little apathetic. Can I just say for a moment that we as Christians, we as the church, we have a tendency to get apathetic when it comes to certain forms of wrongdoing throughout our society and culture. I think it's oftentimes we don't, we don't want to get caught in the middle. We don't want to isolate people. I think we have to push back this default tendency to be, to be apathetic to the larger social issues that plague our world and our society, the, the, the forms of, of racism, the, the, the conversations about life and everything. We oftentimes get apathetic. We just, I just don't, I just, it just doesn't really affect me that much. Or, or I just haven't experienced that. That's, that's not the place for it. But Jesus, as, as we see throughout the Gospels, he talked about mercy. He exemplified mercy. He called us to live, to be agents of mercy. Now, we're not called to be political activists. I'm not saying that. But there are moments in which those go together. Being agents of mercy and standing for rights go together, but there are other moments in which those must separate. Vengeance, apathy, is typically how we want to respond to the wrongs of life, isn't it? But at the end of the day, neither is helpful, and neither is mercy. You see, mercy does not trivialize sin for the sake of just skating by. But let's read it again. Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Jesus gives us this beatitude. He says, blessed are the merciful, those filled, full with mercy, for they will be shown mercy. You see, our council culture says, go ahead, be vengeful over that wrongdoing in your life. It's cool, it's fine, just, 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 just you know, get, get them back in, in your timing, in your way. Our culture also says, it's okay, be apathetic. It's fine. If you just want to ignore it, that's, that, that's your, your prerogative. And what we've done is we've lost sight of the power of mercy and its ability to bring liberation and freedom and support for each and every person. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells this parable. It's oftentimes referred to as the parable of the unforgiving debt. And he tells a story in which there was this king who had returned home and he was making amends for everything that everyone owed in his kingdom. And so he began to almost like he opened the ledger and say, what do the Smiths owe me? What do the, the Johnsons owe, owe me? What do Smiths part two owe me? And, and he begins to go through his list. And, and people are, he's saying, I, I want to call on my debts. I want you to, to, to pay me what I am due. And he gets to this man and, and he owes him 10,000 bags of gold. They say it's roughly the amount of 20 years of salary. And he goes to the king. He says, well, this is what you owe me. I'd like to be paid back. And the man says, well, I don't have the money. He says, okay, well, we'll sell your house, sell your car, sell your, sell your donkey, sell everything you've got. And perhaps we'll have to take your family in and make them work. And he says, I, I, I can't pay this back. I couldn't pay this back in, in many lifetimes. And he says to the king, have mercy on me. Forgive me this debt. 
To which the king looks at the man and he says, okay, I'm a loving and merciful king. I will forgive you this debt. And then a few moments later, the same man is seen and accounted for going up to his buddy, his neighbor, and begins to hold him by the throat and says, hey, bro, remember when I paid for that monocles last week? I'm going to need you to pay me back or else I'm selling you to the cops. And the king hears about this, and he says, you ungrateful servant. Do you not understand what I have done to you? How have you not been able to show mercy? I've forgiven you this massive debt, and yet you chose to hold this small amount over a neighbor. And he throws him into prison, and then Jesus gives us the words that he who has sinned much has been forgiven much. We have, we have lost the power of mercy, because mercy says, I know that you have wronged me. You have hurt me. You owe me. You are in my debt. But I will not label you. I will reset the score. I will wipe the slate clean. Because I, too, have been shown mercy. You see, mercy, it must be in our heart before it hits our head or our hands. Before we begin to process mercy, before we begin to show mercy, it must first exist in our hearts. That you will never know or understand mercy when someone is treating you well, only when they have wronged you. So it begs the question, right? Well, Eric, mercy is easier said than done. You just said this a few moments ago. How do I live a merciful life? If mercy doesn't okay sin, but it refuses to label, mercy doesn't fight back or act like the wrongs doesn't, don't exist. Rather, let me say this, is what mercy does is it joins the story of what is actually happening beneath the surface. So how do we live merciful lives? Is number one is we see our story that God shows us mercy. That each and every one of us, God has shown each and every one of you, each and every one of our staff members, each and every person across the entire globe, across the entire universe, in existence, God has shown everyone mercy. Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that, that God has created us. He delights in his handiwork. But this takes us all the way back to the beginning when God creates in shalom that we were intended to live in harmony and unity with the sovereign creator of the world. We were made in his image, the imago Dei. But then we understand this concept of sin. It has entered and has broken each and every one of us, our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. It infects us all. I heard one pastor say, he said, if sin were blue we'd all be Smurfs. So that was kind of cool. But what that sin does is it has, means we have wronged God, that we are indebted to him, that there is a payment that must take place. And then Paul, in Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 10, he, he talks about, he explains how this payment is made. In Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 10, he says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while 
We were God's enemies. We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? You, you know what my favorite word in that passage is? It's that word while. That while we were still sinners, while the debt was intact, while it was continuing to grow in which we could not pay back, God was kind of saying, I'm going to take you as is. I'm going to buy you broken off the shelf, and I still value you, and I'm going to bring you into my kingdom, into my family as a part of who I am because I am a merciful God. I am a loving God. Timothy Keller, he's an author, theologian, he puts it this way. He says that if you were, if your sin was a hundred times worse than you were, it would still be no match for the mercy of God. Isn't that beautiful? We have to keep in mind that God has shown us this unfathomable mercy in our life. That the debt, the chasm created by sin has been redeemed by Jesus. But we must remember that mercy, it is a gift. It is not a right. It is not something that is earned. Perhaps there's no greater way in which we can symbolize and, and show the world that we have seen and received and understood that mercy than through baptism. Aaron talked about it in the announcements that we have baptism week coming up. And so if you or someone you know has had that question, how do I let the world know of my faith that I've received the mercy of God? It is through that act of baptism. Number two in living a merciful life is not only do we see our story, we begin to see their story. Remember that God has shown them mercy. Right? Don't, don't we like to think that God has been merciful to us, but then when the wrongs are, are on our plate... We begin to, to keep track and we begin to let them build up and consider how we will get those put back together. You see, in the kingdom of God, I like this analogy, is that we are a windshield people, not rearview mirror people. That we drive moving forward, we move forward in our faith, we move forward in the spirit and the power of God, but we're given a smaller view, a windshield, or a, a rearview mirror, where we can look up and remember how God has been merciful to us. But we typically tend to do is we like to live through the, the windshield, but we like to look at others through the rearview mirror. And then what Jesus is saying to us, he's no, 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 no. We are all windshield people. Everyone has a rearview mirror. And so let's treat one another that we have all received the same mercy. Yeah, but Eric, you don't know Carol. You don't, you don't have to work with Steve. Man, I... In a few weeks, my in-laws are coming over, and let me tell you what, if you just spent Thanksgiving with us, you would understand, man. I get it. I've been there. The thing is, is that you and them have been shown the same endless mercy. We need to remember that God has more mercy than we have mess. That applies to us, and that applies to everyone in our lives, and then and only then can we begin to see them their windshield and not the rearview mirror. I think that the, the truth, though, about life is behind every wrong, behind every hurt, there's a story. Like, like behind every person that seems to cause pain through gossip, perhaps it's not so much to, to spread lies or pain, but rather it's a, a desire to belong or have something to say to a group of people. 
That, that perhaps through the, the, the promiscuity, it's, it's not really a desire for sex, but has more to do with the abuse from a past relationship. That perhaps in moments the anger isn't so much about the anger, but maybe it's linked to an abandonment as a child, that behind every wrong there is a story. It doesn't make it right. It doesn't mean that we should forget it. But behind every wrong is a story in your life and in the life of those around you. It reminds me of the prophet Jeremiah as he's quoted in saying Lamentations chapter 3 as he's weeping the state of the nation of Israel. And he says this, he says that his mercies never fail. They are new every morning. That we can only give as much mercy away as we think we have received. It's, it's somewhat of a zero-sum game. And so if our relationship with God is, God, I've only sinned this much, and you've shown me this much mercy, you're only going to have this much mercy to give away. But if we begin to realize the, 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 the depth and the width of our sin and our mistakes and the amount of mercy that we have uh, received from God because it covers everything that we have done, we can remember our story and remember that they have a story too. And so we can begin to extend mercy that we don't even think we're capable of having because we can say, you know what? I don't know what's in your rearview mirror but I know that you have a windshield and I have one too, and which means is we get to move forward knowing that God is on our side. We remember your story and the mercy has, that God has shown unto you as you remember the mercy that he inevitably shows to everyone else. Lastly, number three, how do we live merciful lives? It's we see God's story is that we have received more mercy than we could ever give away. And to me, this is one of the biggest differences between our faith and other religions. Other religions say, earn your keep. Show you're worth it. Work hard. Outdo your, your wrongs with some rights. And maybe the God, the gods, will show you mercy and extend you an invite to hang out with them for all eternity. The Christian faith, the God of Scripture, says, no, 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 you cannot earn it. You cannot mend this gap on your own. You cannot piece yourself back together enough that God in his infinite love has decided to take on that debt on your behalf. That we cannot manufacture the mercy we need from God. But that's who God is. He's a loving, gracious Father. That Moses, as he saw God pass by, he catches the tail end of God. He recounts, what is the presence? What do the attributes of God look like? He says in Exodus 34, he says, The Lord, the Lord, the merciful and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. That mercy is an attribute who defines God. We enter the kingdom of God by mercy. We are kept in the kingdom of God by mercy, and we invite others in through an example of mercy in our life. Makarios, blessed are those who understand mercy. We can put it this way. Happy are the merciful, for they show what they have received. So as we move to a time of response this morning, I want to challenge you, challenge us all with something. 
we find ourselves perhaps asking the question, how do I know if I've received the mercy of God? Maybe asking yourself, well, how do I know, Eric, if, if I've actually received this mercy, if, I, if this mercy exists in my life? It's a simple question in return. Are you giving mercy away? Not out of earning, not out of obligation, but out of a joy, a transformation of the mercy you've received inside so that it begins to become expressed to the world around you. I'm not going to pretend like I know each and every one of your stories. I'm not going to pretend I know the wrongs that you have faced in life. Some of us have faced wrongs that are despicable, hurtful, painful, that create a, create a baggage, create a pain that we carry around with us. We've received wrongs because of the color of our skin, because of our gender. We've received wrongs because of where we grew up, because of how much money we don't make, whatever. I don't, I don't know your story. And I just want to remind you of the love and the mercy of God, that it was not your fault. You did not ask for it. And you're under no obligation to somehow repay that debt on your own strength, because that debt was paid for. You must also, though, remember that the mercy that God extends to you, he extends to them. And this is arguably one of the hardest parts about the teaching of Jesus. We are all quick to say, yes, God, give me your mercy. Make me an agent of your mercy. Let me experience your mercy. But if you could withhold it from them, that'd be kind of nice. If you could give me 100% of your mercy, but only give them Maybe 50%. That'd be, that'd be great. Make me feel better. Jesus addresses each and every one of us. He says, my mercy is for all. It is never ending. Whether you were, you were trapped away in a camp or whether you helped put them there whether you were the one who was wronged or you were the wrongdoer, whether you were the victim or the victimizer, whether you were the oppressed or the oppressor, that the mercy of God does not okay the sin, it does not okay the wrong, but invites the story of God to the forefront of our lives. And so when you find yourself unable to muster the ability to be merciful, don't look to their life don't look to the wrong. Look inside. Look to your story. Look to how God has already been true and faithful and graceful and loving and merciful to you because that is the source, that is the power, that is the transformed heart that can yet again extend mercy to that spouse, to that former spouse, to yourself, that boss, that coworker, that employee, to that child, to that friend, that in-law, that neighbor, that past relationship, that person online, that person who you've never met before, yet they seem to know everything about you and hold it against you. That mercy has the ability to come out, not when we say, we'll see what you can give. Rather, I will see and know what Jesus Christ has given for me. 
to be a person, an agent of mercy. And so this morning, as we continue to worship, we every single week have the opportunity to remember the mercy of God expressed through Jesus Christ. Would you partake in communion with me this morning? That Jesus, on his final night with his disciples, he was in the upper room. He held up the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. In that same moment, he held up the cup. And he said, this represents my blood poured out for you. Take and drink. Jesus commanded us to do this in remembrance of him, in remembrance of the mercy that he withstood, that he willingly gave of himself, his life, his death, his resurrection, that unites us back to God. Would you pray with me as we continue to worship this morning? Heavenly Father, you are good, you are loving, and as Moses said, you are merciful. Lord, I know that me personally, I need to be someone who can be quick to show mercy. I could use a better understanding of that mercy and how I could be someone, a better man, pastor, husband, father, friend. And I give more mercy away than I think I have in me because that is a representation of you transforming my heart. So God, that is my prayer for each and every one of us this morning. That we have the ability to know and receive your mercy by faith through the grace of your son, Jesus. But also that we be able to extend it to others for your kingdom and for your glory. It's your name that we pray.